Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, the ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. My New Testament teacher and old friend, Professor Amy Jolavine of Vanderbilt reminded me what adults used to call me when my friends and I were being rambunctious as kids. Stop acting like wild Indians, they would say. Of course, we didn't have any wild or domesticated Indians in the neighborhood since our forebears had wiped them out 300 years earlier. And not that my parents' friends meant any harm to Indians. It's just hard to hear the effect of your own language sometimes, including scriptural language. The New Testament is about many things, principally God's covenant with humanity through faith in Christ. But New Testament books are also laced with person-to-person stereotypes of Jews that still run shutters down the spines of Jewish people today. Whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, Mark 6. When those words are heard by a good person who still practices Judaism in my synagogue, it's like a Native American hearing, don't be like those wild Indians. The New Testament books were written by men, almost all Jews, who believed that Jesus was the Israelite Messiah and who also felt understandably threatened by the then much larger number of first and second century Jews who saw things differently. And one of their responses was to preach that Pharisaic Jews were hypocrites, blind fools, full of greed. It gets worse in Mark 14, Matthew 23 and 27, John 8, Galatians 3, Revelation 3, and the litany of other anti-Jewish passages. Can Christianity be purged of 1,900 years of anti-Semitism without changing the Gospels? I think so. When I first spoke in this preaching series over 20 years ago, I recommended James Carroll's must-read Constantine's Sword, The Church and the Jews. And the slimmer volume by Mary Boys has got only one blessing to understand the context of these texts rather than simply reading them in a vacuum. What separates Jews and Christians is the Christ of faith, not the Jesus of history. The New Testament, not as a faith document, but as historical record chronicles both the in-house fight of first-century Jews 
and the early Jesus followers more successful outreach to Gentiles in places like Ephesus, Galatia, Corinth, and Rome. In those verses where Jesus speaks to his fellow Jews, he often sounds like members of my own Jewish family criticizing other Jews. But as Dr. Levine teaches, when that material is repackaged into a gospel, which is proclaimed to the Gentile church, internal critique becomes external bigotry. For 25 years, whenever I taught future ministers the long history of Christian anti-Semitism down the road from here at Memphis Theological Seminary, I would do exactly what Professor Levine did with her class. After our class studied the murder of entire European Jewish communities by mobs coming directly from churches on Good Friday, I would show these soon-to-be ministers a photo of my Jewish daughter, and I would say, when you are in your future pulpit, please do not say anything that would ever hurt this child or that might lead a listener in your sanctuary to hurt her, even if it may never have occurred to you that these New Testament texts are what reinforced centuries of anti-Jewish prejudice and twisted the history of Jesus the Jew crucified by the Romans into Jesus the Christian murdered by the Jews. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Are words heard in church pews without ever being offered an examination of who the Pharisees actually were based on so many other available ancient sources. Instead, as Severs and Levine state in their new book on the Pharisees, the canonical gospels report concerning the Pharisees is, pun intended, taken as gospel. But please listen to what no less than Pope Francis recently said, and I quote the Pope. The perpetuation of misinformation about Jews by Christians at the pulpit has fostered a negative image of the Pharisees, often without a concrete basis in the gospel accounts. And over time, this view has been attributed by Christians to Jews in general. In our world, such negative stereotypes have unfortunately become very common. Pope Francis continues, one of the oldest and most damaging stereotypes is precisely that of Pharisee, especially when used to put Jews in a negative light. To love our neighbors better, the Pope says, we need to find ways to overcome ancient prejudices, end quote. Casey didn't know the Pharisees were the early rabbis, rabbis like Hillel, who said, what is hateful to you, do not do to any person. The Jewish version of the golden rule. Pharisees were rabbis. Rabbis are Jews. So Pharisee became code for Jew. And saying that Pharisees are hypocrites in the popular Christian imagination meant 
that Jews are hypocrites. The excuse, but we're all Pharisees, we're all guilty of these crimes, doesn't work very well since Christians in the pew historically always knew that they, unlike the Pharisees, were baptized members of the church, not so much the Jews. So what ends up happening is that the congregation confesses the sins of the Jews rather than their own sins. And sermons rationalizing that the gospel's anti-Jewish polemic refers only to some Pharisees, since we have a few good ones like Nicodemus and Gamaliel. That's not a good sermon either. Saying that only some in the mainstream Jewish community are money-loving, hypocritical, terrible people is like America's former president saying that when Mexico sent Mexicans to invade America, they sent the rapists, the criminals, the drug lords, and some good Mexicans too. We all have problematic texts. We all do. And damning texts read aloud have done and can still do real damage unless carefully explained and contextualized. Ironically, one of the early architects of my own Jewish reform movement was the German reform rabbi Abraham Geiger. Geiger argued that the Pharisees, who opposed the upper priestly Sadducee class, were the spiritual forebears, progenitors of reform Judaism. Geiger portrayed the Pharisees, and I quote, as the liberalizing progressive movement that sought to democratize Judaism by making each Jew equal to a priest and each home equal to a temple. Shades of Luther's priesthood of all believers. But Rabbi Geiger went even further by contending that Jesus was himself a Pharisee. As we all know now, the incomprehensible backlash to Geiger's 19th century reclamation of Jesus the Jew was the Nazi mutation of theological anti-Semitism into a racial anti-Semitism promoting an Aryan Jesus, Jesus the Christian genetically purified of so-called Jewish blood. When you conflate anti-Jewish passages in both the New Testament and Koran with today's mainstreaming of casual anti-Semitism, there is additional reason to be on guard. From Kanye West's tweeting of Hitler's greatest hits to the former president dining with a rabid anti-Semite in Florida and insisting afterward that there is nothing bad about that or that there are good people on both sides and the Jews will not replace us Charlottesville March. My friends, the arc of history when left unchecked, bends as much toward hatred as it does toward justice. 
Now, almost as misunderstood as the Pharisees in the New Testament is what my dear, dear friend and your rector, Reverend Walters, read. The priests in the Old Testament, contrary to a common mischaracterization, the priests were not obsessed with ritual purity. Priests, Levites, Israelites were simply family designations for job tasks back then. That is why among Jesus's most beautiful messages in the New Testament is that everyone is your neighbor, not just your bloodline. Even the outcast Samaritan is your brother. As we just heard in Leviticus, the priests were in the lives of people as healers and helpers, especially for people with skin afflictions. Before the days of dermatology, I see a few in the pews today. Our ancestors were undoubtedly baffled by skin diseases. Swellings and rashes must have frightened them. And these diseases outlined in today's verses obviously caused the afflicted person a great deal of pain. Every great religion in the world has an attitude toward dealing with pain, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual. Some of the great religions of the East teach their members how to avoid pain and heartbreak with a very simple prescription. They can teach you in three words how to avoid ever being hurt by life, much less poison ivy. The teaching goes like this. Don't feel it. This is not a slam against Eastern religions whose adherents are among the most beautiful and compassionate people I know. The ideal, though, in some Eastern religions is to rise to a state of consciousness where you don't feel pain. By withdrawing from the pain, you cease to care. And if you don't care, you'll never be hurt by anything. If you don't feel the pain of losing someone you love, the philosophy goes, you will never be hurt if you lose them. Don't trust anybody, and nobody will ever disappoint you or break your heart. Don't cherish anything, and you'll never be saddened at its being taken away from you. Don't feel, and I guarantee that you will never weep. There are religions, great and venerable ones, that teach that. My faith teaches just the opposite. Feel deeply, care deeply, and be prepared to pay the price that life and love entail including having to start over again. One of my favorite stories in this vein is related by Rabbi Harold Kushner, author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Rabbi Kushner was sitting on the beach one summer day watching two children playing in the sand. They were hard at work building an elaborate sand castle complete 
with gates and towers and moats, and just when they had nearly finished their project, an unexpectedly large wave came along, and in an instant, their treasure was gone. Kushner was transfixed, expecting the children to burst into tears, devastated at their loss. But they surprised him. Instead, the kids ran up the beach laughing and holding hands, moved to another place, and then they sat down to build another castle. From that episode, Kushner says he learned an important lesson. All things in our lives, everything that we put so much time and energy into, my friends, all these are built on sand. At any time, a wave can come and knock down what has been so important to us. And when this happens, only the person who has somebody's hand to hold will be able to work through the pain, even laugh, and start over again. Instead of withdraw from life to withdraw from pain, the past, present, and future of my faith teaches this. Love your parents, though it means someday seeing them grow old and weak and your hands will be powerless to help them. Love them, though it means that someday you will lose them and feel that a part of you has died with them. Love your children, though it will cause you so many sleepless nights. Love them, though it means feeling the pain of scraped knees and their own hurt feelings. Love them, even though that will only make it harder for you one day to see them grow up and go out on their own. But do it the hard way. Love them and trust them enough to let them do that. Love other people, even though it would be so much easier to be indifferent to others. But love them, because to do anything else is, in the words of Stephen Saltzman, to abdicate your humanity, to avoid the pain of being alive. To live and love Jewishly in one sentence means to be sensitive to pain and hurt in the same way these Jewish priests in the Torah were sensitive to every touch. Faith is not about finding ways to avoid pain and sorrow, but how to stand up to pain and sorrow without being completely broken by it. Faith rests in living in a world where catastrophic and tragic things happen daily and still affirm it to be God's world. Faith can also help us live the best lives we were each meant to live. In the afterlife, says Judaism, you will not be asked, why were you not like Moses? Why were you not like Jesus, MLK, or Mother Teresa? Rather, you will be asked, why were you not the best you could have been? No brimstone fire, 
just the loving embrace of the loving parent we call God, urging us to become the blessings we were meant to be. Very few of us in the sanctuary will write a book or a sermon that will be read 20 years from now. But it is truly within the power of everyone president and present here today, it is truly within the power of everyone listening to be a memorable person by living a life of significance at every age. From birth to the three members of Temple Israel I buried this past year who were still inspirational at age 100. Each of us can be a friend who won't easily be forgotten. Each of us can be the kind of neighbor whose impact on a house of worship or community will remain even after we are gone from the scene. Sainthood does not have to be reserved for a small group of souls separated from a world and life filled with earthquakes, shootings, cancer, and infighting, whether in Pharisaic, Levitical, or current times. You don't have to have a particular talent for religion to be a remarkable spiritual person. A life of spiritual excellence is the option available to anyone who takes life seriously. Anyone's life can be fashioned into a spiritual masterpiece. For this 100th anniversary year of the Lenten preaching series, the number 100 in the Bible is represented by the Hebrew letter Kuf, which is the letter for the word Kedushah, holiness. And holiness demands a response, an answer, not a withdrawal. This church and all great houses of worship in every faith demonstrate that faith lies in our response, not God's. Sometimes we may wish to echo the responses of those who came before us, such as, remember that you too were once a slave in Egypt, or love one another, or when someone turns to you for help, you must not turn that someone away empty-handed. But at other times, we must fashion our own response, one that is unique to our own Memphis time and place. Each day, we must listen anew to that place where Scripture says God lies. Not in earthquakes, as God tells Elijah. God was not in the earthquake, but in that still, small voice of conscience inside each one of us. That is the commanding voice of holiness amidst the uncertainty, for that is what faith is ultimately about, living fully in the uncertainty. We're told by the Pharisaic rabbis how Aaron and the priests were supposed to offer the words in number six, with which I'll close, known as the priestly benediction. You're supposed to offer it three ways. Panim el panim, face to face. 
Be'ahava, with love, and Be'nisiyat Kapayim, with outstretched hands. Uh, Leonard Nimoy <laughs> saw his rabbi and cantor do this so often in West L.A., he made it the Spock symbol on Star Trek. But why face-to-face to recognize the godliness in another human being? Worthy of direct encounter, every human being. But the blessing must also touch the heart, the ahava with love and with empathy, and it shouldn't be mechanical. It must come from the heart. And finally, the blessing must transcend feeling and activate the hands. Please rise for our closing blessing, the priestly benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Adonai Panav Elecha Vichuneka. May the Lord cause his countenance to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yisa Adonai Yisa Adonai Panav May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And let us say, Amen. Thank you so much for listening and for inviting me here today. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.